Welcome back to Living Our Breast Lives, a podcast not only about two women thriving with metastatic breast cancer, but also self-love, appreciation, and overall awakening to this beautiful gift we call life. Each episode's theme will be unique and highlight important topics for the MBC community. Please don't forget to not only tune in, but to also subscribe and review. Welcome back, and thank you for tuning into our podcast, Living Our Breast Lives. My name is Ren, and with me is Kate. Hey, I know we were just talking about this, but I feel like we haven't recorded in forever. I don't know why it feels like that. It always feels like such a long time in between our episodes. I know, it's strange. <laughs> um, so I know we started doing the what's new, what's, let's catch up, and I probably should have thought before uh, right now what my catch-up was. I think <laughs> on my <laughs> mind is, um, so I moved to scans every four months instead of three this year, which was like Woo. obviously um, dramatic. I still don't know how I feel about it, but I have a scan coming up in June and I kept in my mind thinking like, oh, it's June, it's June. And then, you know, like thinking June is like really far away and June is next week or something. It's here. Isn't it crazy that just like one month can make such a difference? I mean, when you go from having scans, you know, every three months for how many years, it's like adding that extra month of freedom. It's like, hell yeah. I know. And it's that whole idea of like, I understand why we're doing it. And the hope in that, that there's a reduction of radiation because my doctor thinks that I am going to continue to respond. But there's also that knowing that nothing's guaranteed and things change in an instant. So I'm very much in a like, uh, for better or worse, just keeping busy doing all the other things except acknowledging that that's coming up. So that's that's what's new. Makes total sense. What's new with you? Um, Let's see. So I am getting ready to leave for my trip. Your girl's doing like a whole dual trip. First half in Vegas, um, second half in L.A., mm. Uh, flying solo, meeting some friends. Um, so I'm like pretty excited for that. And then, ooh, other than that, my hummingbirds have started to make an appearance. <laughs> so I'm like overly excited about that. Alert the press. Ben <laughs> and her hummingbirds. Prepare. There will be updates. I just like, I just like sit outside for way too long watching these cute little things. And then, um, Gosh. Oh, I started growing my own vegetables. So come on, like talk about being 34, right? Oh my gosh. That, what is the meme about men who turn 40? It's like men who turn 40 either become obsessed with World War II history or smoking meat. I feel like you're the woman version of that, like birds and um, cucumbers. <laughs> birds and cucumbers. I like it. So anyway, into the episode today, I'm sure everyone has noticed over the past month, we have shifted to become a beautiful color pastel-y grid filled with stories of community members, some familiar, some new, but all sharing the commonality of being diagnosed with cancer as an adolescent or young adult, commonly referred to as AYA. Yes. And I think the last episode, we kind of briefly talked about it, right? That we were going to be doing something like we this? We did. I think we did a little teaser. Month. Okay. Okay. So yes, we touched on the whole, you know, AYA perspective, but I would like to dive in just a little bit more into our why behind doing it. So AYA patients 
we're a unique population in the oncology space. Um, and because of this, we are often like underserved, underrepresented, and this results in sometimes like missed or delayed diagnoses. Um, oh my gosh, insurance coverage issues, lack of support for sexual health and fertility concerns. Like seriously, the list goes on. Lack of peer support groups, uh, impacts to career, education, relationships. I mean, the list truly can go on and on and on. And Kate and I, with as successful as our MTNBC March segment was, we were like, what better way to highlight this group of very specific thrivers than to do another feature? And so that is how AYA May was born. So again, feel free to check out our Instagram page at Living Our Breast Lives. Take a look at the 30 amazing features that we have um, currently on our page for this month. And like we have with our previous features, we have a really special Thriver, AYA Thriver, joining us on the pod today to close out AYA May. So without further ado, let me introduce to you our guest for today. You may recognize her from social media advocacy on Instagram and TikTok, where she always seems to find a great balance between humor and the reality of this life that we are all leading. It's Annie Bond. Woo, welcome. Who, me? <laughs> That was so nice what you just said. It's so Annie, true. thank you so much <laughs> for being here with us today. Um, thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, of course. So often we know, you know, an NBC diagnosis, especially in the AYA crowd, it can end up being almost like the defining thing about someone. And we obviously know that's not freaking true. And so Kate and I, we have this big thing where we like to start off by asking our guests to tell us about them outside of the diagnosis. So please, Annie, tell us everything <laughs> and anything about who is Annie outside of being a thriver. You sound like my therapist <laughs> right now. This is what she always asks me. She's like, but it doesn't define who you are. I'm like, or does it? <laughs> we won't send you a bill though. <laughs> yeah, no bill. Right, there you go. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I am an uh, avid lover of animals. I have a dog walking business that I do in LA that I'm like very proud of. That's amazing. That I started shortly after my diagnosis because it was too scary to like go back to my regular job. I was like, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> um, and I am a comedian. I was a comedian before and like I've been acting my whole life. I am silly enough to have spent tens of thousands of dollars uh, to have a degree in acting. But I moved out to LA to be like a comedian and an actor, and I still do a lot of improv. And I recently wrote and acted in a short about um, it's it's like an anthology, like they it's a part of a film of like seventeen female directors, and it's all like in response to Roe v. Wade being overturned. So mine was about uh fertility you know infertile people and what we've had to go through with roe v wade and uh, it's kind of like a dark comedy and i got to cast one of my friends who's also a young person with metastatic breast cancer <laughs> um so i also love that and i also do musical improv i just went to scotland in march is that when that was to do some there yeah and then i do it here at ucb a lot um and you know i 
also am the mayor of an island in Animal Crossing that I've been working really hard on lately. <laughs> Ooh, we are in the midst yeah. of a mayoral. A mayor. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I am a partner. Why are you the most interesting person ever? <laughs> I also have a great boyfriend. We've been together since before my diagnosis. We did break up a little bit in between, but that was his fault. Um, and he Always exactly he learned fault. his lesson. <laughs> We figured it out. Yeah, and I also love crafts, and I grew up on a farm in Texas, a little chicken farm, and um, I also love to play music. I play the guitar and stuff. Mostly, I just play Taylor Swift covers to my cats and my dog, um, but yeah, it's a crowd. I think Taylor would really love that about you. I think so, too. Yeah. I don't know if she'd understand the dog until she met her, but I'm someone who doesn't believe in like dog people or cat people. I think they're very different creatures. So, like, you can like one more, but why are we comparing two creatures that are so different? Like saying, are you a lion person or a giraffe person? Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's the biggest injustice <laughs> in the world, honestly. Just in case you needed that validation. Yes, thank you. I did. I really did. <laughs> I love that. I echo what Ren said, that that is everything about you. is just fascinating to me. I actually... I think I found you to follow first when I was first diagnosed and then just when I happened to jump on TikTok I found you because of a BuzzFeed article about your TikToks about <laughs> famous people that you had been a waitress for and I was like that's crazy to me that that's <laughs> like she's on BuzzFeed for being like a waitress to famous people and some like a little some hot tea about things like that and I'm like people there's so much more to her like it's so I know <laughs> it was crazy to me to like is that that's Annie that's who I follow like for breast cancer like what so that was literally something I did like in the pandemic because I was bored and I kept seeing people who were doing that who were like reviewing and I was like well I worked at this restaurant for so long and like I have these stories I was like I'm just gonna do one and see what happens and it immediately was like at a million views so fast and I was like, oh, no, what's happening? And then I kept doing them. But then I really quickly started to get like a lot of attention from like places like TMZ and then like the UK equivalent of that. I forget, like Daily Mail and stuff. And people were just like taking things and twisting my words so quickly. And I was very I was like, mm, I think the celebrity world is the most toxic. <laughs> Not it's like, so I'm just going to really hard shift to making cancer content and see if people will respond to that. And I think I definitely lost some followers, <laughs> but I didn't care. I was like, you know what? I told most of the interesting stories. There's more, but like, I, it just, it got really weird really fast, but it was really fun while it lasted. It was just like too much attention for something that I didn't feel very passionate about. I was like, yeah, these are like funny stories, but I don't want to like base a career off of, um, talking shit about celebrities that were rude to me one time. And it didn't matter that I was always like, oh, they were probably just having a hard day. Like, I was never really mean to anyone. Um, and people would just, the articles would be like, and then she said that this asshole was the assholiest asshole you've ever met. I was like, I never said that. You're like, show me where I said that. Yeah, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm a nice lady. That's so yeah, that's how I found you. And um, similarly, I guess we can use that as also a hard pivot to uh, tell us 
and we always open it up. You can tell as much or as little as you want, but tell us about your MBC diagnosis, how you came into this world. Yes. My my new birth, like a fucked up baptism of some sort. Um, call it the da 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 moment. Like dun dun dun. That's right. right. Yep. Uh, so when I was 25, my boyfriend and I had like just started dating um, and he had pretty quickly noticed that I had a lump in my breast and I didn't really think anything of it but I um was I think it was around Christmas so I was home and I was still seeing the gynecologist in Texas even though I was living in California and I had to see a different doctor that day and they were like oh it's nothing to worry about like you're too young for anything serious like you could get an ultrasound if you want but we wouldn't encourage it they didn't like write me a thing for an ultrasound or anything so I came back my birthday's in January I very quickly turned 26 got kicked off my mom's insurance had to like find, you know, navigating the insurance world is so fun, so, so fun. easy to figure out. And I had gone to some doctor that ended up being really expensive. They basically said the same thing, but I could kind of tell that it was getting bigger and that like my armpit area felt weird. Like it felt like swollen or like I was gaining weight in that area, but just like one side. So I tried to find someone a little more dependable and like really push to get something. Um, and even then insurance wouldn't cover it. I had to fight for that too. So it took me about nine months from when I felt the lump to when I got a diagnosis. Um, and it was weird because like the all throughout, it was like really difficult every step. And then once they did the ultrasound, it was like everything was getting rushed. You know, like everyone was leaving the room and we were all making jokes at first and everyone kept getting really quiet. And I was like, some fucked up's happening, huh? You're like, there's like, something fishy going on here. I was like, this is weird. And even the nurse, because they had said like, oh, you need to get a biopsy. And I was like, well, how much is that? Because I was a waitress. Like I was uh, waiting on famous people, but not making that much money. And everything was very expensive along the way. And I remember that receptionist telling me, you know, you need to get this done. Uh, you can worry about what it costs later. Like you can always pay it later. Mm. which is good and bad advice, you know, <laughs> that's how you start building debt very quickly. Um, but I, it's good. I did it because I did end up getting a cancer diagnosis. Um, and then I had suspicious spots in my bone, in my pelvic bone and in my liver, but my bone biopsy was first and I just have bony islands. They're just like basically like birthmarks on your bones. I have those. This is a little Do you scary. Really? Yes, I had them on my hip. They thought I had um, Mets there because my, oh my God. Google Met was on my sternum, but they're like, there's something in your hips. And then they looked at it and they're like, you have bony islands. And I was like, that sounds relaxing, honestly. <laughs> right. I'd like to go to a bony island right now. Exactly. And they definitely are. It's been eight years of them getting looked at. <laughs> But so we thought like, oh, it's probably just stage two. Like if that's negative, the liver's going to be negative. The liver was not negative. It was a cancer. And so uh, that was a fun day. My mom cried a lot and I think I didn't cry at all. I was just like, okay, time to schedule more appointments. And then from there, I, my first oncologist, we had like talked to a nurse about um, fertility options because she had brought it up. And so I brought it up to him and he had like a private practice. We had to wait like three hours for every appointment and they weren't in our insurance. And they kept talking about this program that didn't exist. And 
the one program that did wasn't retroactive. It was like a terrible office. And then when I brought up my fertility options, he said he would fire me as a patient if we did that. I'm sorry. What? And that felt weird. So that, yeah, exactly. So that really prompted us to go get a second opinion. And then we were like, well, while we're at it, like, let's get a third opinion. Because everyone was saying different things, like even surgeons were saying different things. But because my cancer had only spread to my liver and my lymph nodes and like I didn't have a huge tumor in my left breast. They were like, we could do everything with surgery and wait on chemotherapy and like maybe just start you on uh, oral chemo and shutting off the ovaries because everything was very hormone positive because um, I don't have any mutations or anything that we know of yet. Um, so then the third oncologist we saw was amazing. That was at City of Hope. That's a doctor I still have today. Like the second I walked into that hospital, they signed me up with a social worker. They actually signed me up for that program that they kept talking about and never letting me sign up for. Um, and they like recorded the thing. And I remember my oncologist just being so kind and he kind of looks like Bernie Sanders. And that was 2015. So it was like, yeah, that is <laughs> is a good guy we love an old oncologist yeah. mine looks like dumbledore oh. and i just i love him <laughs> i respect that yeah mine his name is dr wiseman oh. like come on yeah you can't say no to a wise man no yeah not. but um so he wanted to start me just by I, I did freeze my eggs uh and then i started on lupron tamoxifen and letrozole but it wasn't doing much it just was keeping everything stable and then we switched to Ibrantz, Tamoxifen, or no, Ibrantz, Letrozole, and Lupron. Um, and that's pretty much what I've been on, except that I hated Lupron. It made me, like, very nauseous all the time, and I was very dramatically losing weight and very unhappy. <laughs> um, so I removed my ovaries, but first we did the surgery on my liver. I got a lumpectomy with a lymph node resection. I did about eight weeks of radiation. Um, and that got me to no evidence of disease to my doctor uses the word remission. So I, I do as well. Um, and yeah, then I got my ovaries removed so that I could stop getting that damn shot in the butt that made me so sick. <laughs> and I've basically been able to just like be on Ibrantz since then. And it's, uh, very unheard of even, you know, at the doctor, they're like, God, we haven't seen somebody basically on my first line of treatment. Moxvin I only took for like a month and it wasn't doing what they wanted it to do. So they pretty quickly switched me. Um, yeah, I, it's very lucky. <laughs> That's, I mean, wow. I'm, I'm also on my first line of treatment, um, even four years later, but you're going on eight years. So yes. you're on your first line, double the amount of years that I've been on it. That is truly amazing. Yeah, and I'm very happy for it. Uh, who knows why it is? And, you know, survivor's guilt is definitely a thing. Oh, it, yeah. With this much time, it just gets worse and worse. Kate and I actually recently, yeah, we did an episode on survivor's guilt. And it was, it was a rough one, but it was a necessary episode because we all feel it. Absolutely. It's all there. <laughs> but I really appreciate you sharing all of that um, with us. I just, wow, eight years. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, thank you. And I will be, uh, seeing Taylor Swift on my cancer anniversary. Oh, year. hell yeah, you are on my eight year. I was like, Oh, 
That is in a celebration right there. What a way to do it. I think we're going to go, Annie. I'll have to message you and see which day because I think we're going to just bite the bullet and see her again in L.A. Yes, I'm going on the 4th. Seriously, I can't go once and Kate, you're about to go twice. Well, it's it's a bad decision. It's definitely a YOLO cancer decision because if you've seen the resale prices, I'm like, it's it this is gonna be fine it's fine (laughs) it's yeah it it, listen it'll be worth it it. i know it'll be worth it so she was amazing i need to see it again your bank account might be like fuck but you know you'll be happy and that's all that matters that's what credit cards are for exactly like you know this christmas everybody's getting high fives but i'm gonna see (laughs) so merry christmas i love a good old high five all right high five great job (laughs) um so less about Taylor Swift and more about <laughs> Annie. <laughs> so Annie's feature uh, was just posted a few days ago, um, this past Tuesday on May 30th. Um, so if Annie, if you don't mind, we do have a few questions about some of what you shared with the community on Instagram. Okay, so we did ask about certain gaps that you had experienced in your care as an AYA patient, and you shared something that was familiar in so many of the other features this month, and it was the time that it took you to get a diagnosis. Side note, she mentioned it before, but she was dismissed for nine long months at 26 after feeling a lump in her breast. So, so much of your social media centers, you know, around the importance of advocating for yourself. So did your personal experience in that really solidify how serious that gap is? I mean, a hundred percent. I think the biggest takeaway for me was that, you know, before that in my life, anytime I was sick, I would go to the doctor. They would tell me what is wrong with me. They would give me medicine and I would get better. Um, And the most serious thing I'd had done was I had my tonsils removed (laughs) when I was 18 uh, because I kept I had a a lot of strep when I was younger (laughs) and even then it was like oh yeah this is a serious thing but the doctor knows what to do the doctor is always right and so you know when I went to that first doctor and they told me um, that it was nothing to worry about that I was too young that I didn't have a family history I believed them And it's not, I always have people, you know, in my comments stuff, like, you should sue that person. But in a way, I I don't, I'm not angry at them because in a way they're not wrong. Like statistically, yeah, I shouldn't have had cancer. But they also know that that's not how cancer works. And I feel like if the technology exists to know 100% for sure what an abnormality in the body is no matter what it is say it's a lump in the breast so often people are told like oh it's a cyst or it's likely nothing to worry about or women get lumps all the time and I just think it's ridiculous that the technology exists for somebody to just then go get a test whether it's an ultrasound whether it's a goes to a biopsy whatever it is they should be able to do it and it's just crazy to me that that isn't like the standard and that it's even seeming to get further away from that when we have people saying not to do self-exams like I wasn't really doing self-exams you know I was making sure I always went to the gynecologist every year but that was like me taking care of my body and I feel like if I wasn't in a relationship 
I might not have had somebody who noticed that and told me like, I, maybe it would have taken me longer to notice it. Or maybe I would have been really scared when I noticed it. But the fact is, when I did go to a doctor, I did get it looked at pretty quickly. And I was basically convinced that I didn't have anything to worry about. And fighting insurance is exhausting, especially when you're in your 20s. Like you don't know anything about it. Nothing. I had the lump before I was kicked off of Obamacare. You know, like I didn't, I had an acting degree. I didn't know anything about science. And I just think it's crazy that we don't push for that. Because, you know, I said before that when they were doing my ultrasound, that's when I kind of knew that something was wrong. And from what I understand, it's because they could see how much was, like how much blood was going to that area and like how many, like, like there it was very active, the area where my cancerous tumor was. So they could tell just from the ultrasound that this is likely cancer. So why are we not pushing for that more? Exactly. Like the radiation involved or whatever, the risk involved in an ultrasound is so minimal. And it just, it seems like it's a gamble and it's a gamble with our lives. Like they knew right away on the ultrasound and I could see it on the screen. It looked like a big black amoeba (laughs) and it did not look good. It did not look healthy and I do not have a medical degree. So it's like, yeah, start listening to patients and let's start not gambling with our lives, I guess. That's how I feel. Yeah, like what is the point of the scientists making all of these advances if they are barricaded by whatever is stopping that, whether it's insurance companies not wanting to, you know, pay for that much money? or Because to me, it seems like the only reasoning in it is money or like places being too busy and that just seems like not a good enough reason to gamble with people's lives yeah no I agree and I really feel like it's heard way too often in our community and it pisses me off because it needs to change and there's also like this lifelong like psychological problem that follows that one doctor's decision and for me it's like that what if space and listening to what you said before I liked your outlook on it. Like, it doesn't seem like you have any resentment. And I feel like the resentment definitely wears off as time goes on. But for me, I felt like it was one of the hardest places to be because it's like, well, what if I hadn't been dismissed for so long? What if I fought harder in the beginning? Like, would I have had a better outcome? And like, we're all human, right? Our minds tend to wander to the most uncomfortable places. Um, But I would say the constant in all of this is that we're putting in the work now. Yeah. And I'm definitely like so much quicker to blame myself before I'll blame anyone else. I'm a middle child. It's just like what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, I should have pushed. And honestly, like it also helped to have somebody there who was constantly checking back in on me about it, which was my my boyfriend just being like, hey, you know, I think we should keep we should get it looked at again. And I had the convenience, let's call it for lack of a better term of my tumor being on the slope of my breast. So it was very visible to me. So we have very similar stories at the time. My, I, was he a fiance at that time? I don't, whatever he was. <laughs> Danny, my current husband right now, he uh, also found it. And it was around the same spot that you're talking about too. And I was so engulfed in life and teaching and just your everyday stressors that I, I don't know how long I would have went without noticing it if it wasn't for him. So we can Is thank our men boob? for that. Uh, no, it's my ring. <sighs> that's, that's really I know. Cool. Then we really oh. would have been twinsies. <laughs> I'm a lefty. 
Mine was somewhere. Oh, they were I found mine in the shower after <laughs> after uh working out. It was like right on my where your uh sports band hits and that oh like, yeah what um Ren said I had a well woman six months before I found it and when I found it it was like the size of like a very large walnut. It was big. And I remember the doctor pausing when she was doing my breast exam and like palpating that area a little bit longer. And my mind constantly goes back to that. Like what would have happened if I would have said, why did you do that again? Why? Like what's, what do you feel? Mm -hmm. And I just trusted Mm -hmm. that. And I did have dense breasts. So I'm sure if I went back and asked for my records, I've never asked. I don't really want to know what's documented that day, but I'm sure it's just dense breast tissue. And that's what she thought. Yeah. Well, and it's crazy that it's like, I, so like I went in specifically to get that looked at. And when I, after she told me it's probably nothing to worry about, I then like went on the internet, of course, and looked up like, what does a tumor feel like? It's like, oh, it's very round, like a marble. And mine didn't feel like it had edges, but that's because I have dense breasts as well. And I'm like, I wish somebody would have told me that like, when I was younger, I remember being told so often that I have dense breasts. Nobody mentioned that that's going to impact my breast health moving forward and could like increase my risk of having a tumor and like not realizing it and like not being able to really depend on my own self exams as much too. But I will say uh, that my first oncologist was incorrect and was not good. He seemed nice enough, but the fact that he's because I even I blocked that out of my memory because in my head, thank God my mom was there because uh, I have a very active imagination. It turns out with my memory and remember things incorrectly, uh, even before I had cancer. But my mom reminded me of this recently because I thought that when he said that, you know, I remember bringing up to him wanting to freeze my eggs because I was likely going to get chemo and I you know wanted to preserve my fertility. And he hadn't brought it up and I brought it up to him. And in my head, he had like kind of laughed and said like, no, 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 that's ridiculous. You can't do that. Like you have stage four cancer. Like, why would you do that? But what he actually did was that plus he said, I will fire you as a patient if you do that. I do not agree with that. And that I like had blocked out of my memory. Like my mom had to remind me of that. Isn't that crazy what we block out? Like the the little parts of trauma that our brain is just like, nope, poof. Goodbye. And I do think it is absolutely wrong that he did that. And it is kind of illegal, but I'm I'm not going to go sue him. Like, I don't have the energy for that. That, ooh, does that fuel my fire? That pisses me off. So again, we have another um, commonality in that. And our next question actually had to do with fertility preservation and just like um, conversations around fertility and the lack of insurance coverage for it. Uh, this is obviously hard for AYA patients who have not had the opportunity to start building their families before being diagnosed. And so obviously you had to have had a, a more positive experience after you fired this doctor, correct? With fertility, I think, especially it was, for me, like there are a lot of programs that do exist that do help w- women with this. But the fact is, there's a huge gap, which is timing. Um, Because obviously, with freezing your eggs, it matters when your cycle is. And I mean, when you get diagnosed with cancer is not really like going to always coincide with that. And I 
by the time we got around to discussing my fertility, I was basically at this point of like, you need to start in like a few days or else you're going to have to wait a month to start treatment. And so it would have been like, you know, almost five to six weeks of just knowing I have cancer, like waiting to start treatment. And I think that people don't realize that and how, you know, there is this huge emphasis when you're diagnosed of like, you need to start treatment as soon as possible. But you also only have that window to preserve your fertility. And I think it's not emphasized that like, hey, if you stop and preserve, preserve your fertility, you're not going to suddenly have twice as much cancer because that's, of course, what our minds are doing. Being like, oh, if I let it keep growing, it's going to get out of control. and I'm going to die just from doing this. Or like if I put extra estrogen in my body, it's going to explode all over my body or something. Girl, you are speaking to my soul right now. So yeah. like, even with an aggressive, like triple negative diagnosis, my oncologist suggested she was like, you take the month and you freeze your eggs because she knew that I always envisioned motherhood. Obviously, it wasn't going to happen anytime soon, but she wanted to give me the opportunity. Could the possibility arise in the future? And you know what? That possibility could absolutely arise in the future because I have been Ned for so long and I did take that opportunity to freeze my eggs. And I wouldn't, you know, even have that thought if my oncologist didn't say, you know, even with the aggressive diagnosis, she was like, I know how important this is to you. We had the whole discussion about it. But the problem is, is that not everybody gets that opportunity and it breaks my freaking heart. Yeah, because or they're all made rush, to be rush, so rush. scared that they yes. can't think. You know, they're so scared, especially people who already have a kid, say, mm -hmm. or, you know, there's something in their life that is so important and they're like, I, I can't risk that. And I mean, anyone's going to feel like that, even if you're just young and you're like, I have no idea what to do with all this information. Yep. And it's not like you're told, okay, now go to a therapist and discuss it with them. No. Oh my God, that comes later, you know? Yeah. And of course it's like, is there a danger in it? And they're like, yeah, there is a little bit of danger in it, <laughs> but it's not so bad that you can't do it. One of our other mm -hmm. thrivers this month talked about the importance of like choosing words and that words matter and how your oncologist or your doctor, or your team says things uh, can make all the difference. And so you know, for me, I had triple positive that was extremely aggressive. Um, it had really gone from nothing to something in a very short amount of time. Um, I had a 99% estrogen positivity or whatever. And um, so my oncologist did sit down and ask those questions. And he is one of the kindest like humans. And I remember asking him, he said, you know, it is an option. There are not it's not risk-free in the time it would take to do it. And also the hormones involved in doing that given your situation. And so it's something that um, it's your decision and it's a decision that's going to have a ripple effect. And I remember asking him, what would you tell your child to do? And he was honest and said, I would, if my child was in your situation, I would say it's not the right choice because the risks for you are too heavy. And that um, I mean, it did change the trajectory of um, my life, but I also was not like bent on motherhood. It was motherhood was always something that if my partner was really passionate about it, I might like want one or two mm. kids, but it wasn't something that I like personally like a goal. And so it was an easier decision for me, but I just so appreciated him sitting down talking about the risks 
showing me studies that validated what he was saying and then to have him answer honestly that what he would do if I was his family was um, words matter and it's it's helpful when you get bad news too um, to have honesty and transparency I think that's so important yeah I kind of felt like that too like I was like I don't know what I would want to do like, I don't, I didn't know if I wanted to have a kid or not, but I was like, well, I just want to still have the option. Like, I don't want to ever lose the option. Yep. And the fact that your experiences were just like, uh, Kate and I seem to have very, um, appropriate and like healthy conversations with our oncologist. And then I, we listen to your story and what he said to you, firing you as a patient, just because you're, 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 you're wanting, you know, those questions answered. I mean, that's bizarre. It's and so that's that's what weird. worries me too. Like Kate and I, we laugh about it all the time. Like even with our Instagram page, like we feel in a sense, like we want living our breast lives to be like a safe space. And just to hear that like some of our like community is getting treated this way by doctors, well, so many people, it never even gets brought up. There's so many people who like I was recently at an AYA event in Chicago. And that was like a thing a lot of people mentioned was that their oncologist never even brought it up and they just started treatment. And so it was like, they didn't find out till after they started treatment. And then it's too late. Yeah. And then you can't do anything. Like that kind of conversation should never be pushed to the side as if it doesn't matter. Like it does matter, especially yeah. if you envisioned motherhood in your future. But it is a huge financial hurdle. Like, I mean, I was 26. So obviously everybody's throwing you know, pity money at me. Yeah. And also my parents, like I'm from a small town and my parents are very like community oriented and very kind people. And I've always done like a lot of, you know, I've always been a nice person and stuff. So in that moment, like it does pay off, but it's so weird to be sitting there being like, I'm about to spend like $13,000 of other people's money just to freeze my eggs. Like it felt petty at the time in a way. I feel that. And I can understand how a lot of people won't have that money to do that. And so then if they have this timing option, of course, they're going to choose starting treatment because you, it doesn't matter if you have eggs or not, if you're not alive. That's So true it's such too. a high pressure thing while you're also dealing with the intense like trauma of hearing that you have c- cancer and that you're going to start cancer treatment. Oh, and so many women find their, especially breast cancer when they're pregnant or when they're breastfeeding. That's like very common. We have seen that so many times on our um, past and current segment. It's way more common than you would think. Yeah. Yeah. Because your hormones are going crazy Mm -hmm. and you're hyper aware of the changes that are happening in your body. And they're dismissed. Just to add that layer, they're usually like, oh, it's, you know, mastitis or this is normal. This is normal hormonal changes. And once again, it's like, or or we could do a scan and really make sure that that's what it is. (laughs) It's like, is there a way to figure out what this is? Like, that's always like kind of what I encourage people to ask is just to be like, is there a way to know for sure? Because if you're saying likely it's nothing, it's like, okay, I'd like to know for sure. How do I do that? That's good advice. Yeah. And just push until somebody tells you how that is. Like, does the technology exist to tell me whether or not? Like, great, then let's do it. And we just really appreciate you talking. I know this is, it's a hard topic to talk about for a lot of people. It's, it's um, something that is a major loss. Ren's been always very transparent in how this impacted, you know, her dreams of motherhood and how those things get put on the back burner. And so we just really appreciate um, all of our community for opening up about things that are 
a lot of times still very raw. Um, and so that's, I think what you've shared is so helpful and will help other patients, A, be able to think of those things. Because when your brain's in crisis with a cancer diagnosis, you're not your best thinker. And so I think this is just really good um, information and help. And also people just don't talk about, because I, I even hear so often now people are like, oh, do you, have you looked at Livestrong? Have you done this? And I'm like, the timing is so not talked about and people need to know that there's not time to look at those. And those kinds of, you know, foundations, I would like for them to also kind of account for that too. That would be nice. I know some of them re- really try to, but it is just very hard. Like when you're dealing with a million different scans every day and like the fact that you have cancer and everyone's calling you and telling you to take more bee pollen, uh, you don't really know like how to figure it all out <laughs> in the moment. <laughs> I think that's a really actually a good transition to our next question. So one of the questions we asked all of our AYA thrivers this month was, um, and what Ren opened up the episode with, is that AYA thrivers are an extremely unique um, group of, of patients that are different than what a lot of oncologists are, you know, quote unquote, used to treating. That when you're older, you can, you know, you tend to be established in a career and have a retirement and have medical insurance and have a house or... Um, your life is a little bit more stable. And when you are under 40, that's not the case. And so you're, um, it can make for a very difficult journey. And so when we asked you about how um, cancer really impacted your life being diagnosed in your 20s and your approach, you were very candid and it gave me goosebumps, it's probably going to give me goosebumps again, saying that when you aren't guaranteed a long life, you choose to make it a full one by seeking happiness, fulfillment, and joy. Can you share a little bit more about that and like what you do to do those things? Because that was like a goosebump moment for Ren and I. <laughs> Good. I, I like to hear that. So I know it's not just me being a little crazy. <laughs> um, no, we crazy too. <laughs> I think for me, it. so really what it came from, if I'm being honest, was less even my actual diagnosis and more, I lost a friend about a year into my diagnosis who was in a car accident and she died like right away, like one of my best friends. And I remember we'd had so many conversations and she was always so worried about me. And then for her to just be gone in an instant, I was like, God, I have this weird feeling about this because I feel like you know, why, why would that happen to her and not to me? And then I had lost a few people that I like friends I'd met in the community for the first time, kind of right after that. And I was like, I, I can't, I, I can't like sit on this. I can't like pretend like this is normal because it's not. And it feels so different to me than anything else ever has in my life. And I just, had this moment of like, I, life is happening to me right now. Like as I'm, I was spending so much time worrying about what was going to happen to me, how much sicker I was going to get, if I was going to suffer, like what my parents were going to go through, like my loved ones while I was sick. And then to just lose somebody like that, I was like, God, she was spending her precious time and energy worrying about me and not knowing that her time was about to end. And it just showed me that like, you know, people say this, I feel like in a toxic positivity way where it's like everything, like anything can happen at any time, but truly like anything can happen at any time. And, you know, cancer is not 
something that makes sense ever. Car accidents don't make sense. But the, the thing that is true is that we all have a limited amount of time on this earth and our life is happening to us right now. And I just can't imagine like going to a job and working towards retirement. Like genuinely, I, and I know that works great for some people, but I'm too aware now of the fact that everything in my life can change in an instant and that I don't want to be working towards something I want to be in the moment. Like I want to be living my life how it is right now. And I don't want to expect that my future is going to define what my life is. Mic drop. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I will say I still work in, I work in corporate America. And one of the biggest things that I like grappled with was um, that. And, you know, it used to be you'd have your, uh, you know, career development conversations and where do you want to be in six months and a year and five years? And it was, I was always like, well, let me tell you, cause I have all my plans in a PowerPoint. And then I got <laughs> diagnosed and I was like, uh, alive that might just, we just need one slide. that was alive. That's my plan for six months, a year, five years. Um, but seriously, it's like, it changes everything. And I, um, made a deal with the universe that again, don't take financial advice from me, but I stopped, I stopped like contributing to my retirement. And I was like, if I'm still here in five years, I'll start contributing again. But in the meantime, that money, um, I can use it to, you know, YOLO, go see Taylor Swift for a second time, you know? Um, so it does shift things. And I, I say that to say that I had recently a, a conversation with my executive director and she asked that question. And for the first time ever, I was extremely candid that um, I love my job. I'm good at my job. I will always work be a hard worker for my company, but the corporate ladder hamster wheel is just not my goal anymore. I'm happy to progress naturally, but it's not, I don't need to have a certain title anymore. I don't need to um, do that stuff. What I want to do is travel and eat good food and uh, do the things that I kept putting off in my 30-year-old mind. Um, until cancer came in. So I think that's such a good point that it really does shift it for you to remind you that corny or not, um, life is really, really fragile. And when it's done, it's done. And it's done in an instant. And how many times have we seen that, Kate, where people are just writing to us, you know, saying that they really didn't start living until their cancer diagnosis. And it's like, almost ass backwards, but how much sense does it make? Yeah, like it, it definitely, like I wish it didn't take that. Um, but really like I'm so close to my parents now in a way that I wasn't like the friends, I have less friends, but those friendships are yes. so much deeper and like more precious to me. And I'm able to like, I know that like traveling is something that's important to me. I know that you know, obviously I want to be able to afford things. So like, again, I also say to you, I'm like, don't take the financial advice from me. <laughs> but I used to like struggle so much with the fact that I had debt and that my credit was so bad when I was dealing with cancer. And I was like, wait, my credit is bad because I went to college and got cancer when I was 26. I was like, Cause I think I effect, can sleep baby. at night. 
and repair that later. (laughs) And like, I'll tell you what, you can repair your credit at any time pretty quickly. Like, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. But I just like, I just appreciate the opportunity to live more now. And I think that took a lot too, because um, also like, I think uh, something a lot of people don't talk about with cancer is like the weight of survivor's guilt and the weight of losing people in the community and how that can also make it feel like you're not allowed to live a good life. Like for me, for a long time, I struggled with the fact that, and this sounds so petty, that I didn't get chemo, that I didn't get IV chemo. I felt like I wasn't allowed to be an advocate. And then I had this moment where I thought about one of the first support groups I ever went to was run by this woman who I remember she had had a double mastectomy and that was all she had had to do was like that and radiation. And in my head, I was like, God, I hope that I don't have to get chemo. And like, cause of course no one is like thrilled about it, but it is one of the most effective ways that we have of treating cancer. And I know that I'm just lucky that I was able, that I've been able to have so much success on this. That doesn't mean that I will never have to get it. And that it doesn't mean that it lessens my experience and that what I've been through is enough to present to the world. And it's okay to have a slightly luckier situation than, and, but it's weird because it's like, oh, the reason I didn't get it is because I was stage four, (laughs) you know? So it's, it is like this complicated, weird maze to navigate. And it took me so much to just get to a point where I could just be proud of myself and know that like all I have to do is be honest about what I've been through and know that like there's a time and a place for me to say I don't know what I'm talking about and that's okay. And we put ourselves in these boxes like we really do because Ren and I did an episode on survivor's guilt and I talked about how I feel like because I was treated with you know quote-unquote curative intent and I did chemo that it was really difficult for me to find my place in the NBC community because I felt like a fraud that I did the exact same treatment, less a radiation schedule. And so I was treated like an early stage patient and I have really stupid cancer, you know, knock on wood that is behaving um, to with these drugs. And so it, it's hard. And I think we're our, in the same way that we're our own worst critics, I think, we place a lot of pressure on ourselves about my journey's not as bad or as valuable. And I, um, for those of you who don't know Kay Crawford in the community, um, she's a long-term NBC advocate, thriver, amazing, funny, funny person. I learned from her at a retreat that we went to. She referred to it as um, pulling out and comparing your trauma D. Um, with the world. And we just don't need to do that. We don't need to compare sizes. We don't need to compare anything about it. And it makes me laugh to this day because as soon as somebody starts doing it, I'm like, we don't, we don't have to do that. We've all been through hell and back. And um, the more that we like lift each other up and say, you belong here, the stronger we can be. Yeah. Cause never once has anyone in the community ever said to me that I am less of a survivor or that I have, uh, you know, that I'm less valid as an advocate because of my experience. Never once has anyone ever even gotten close to saying that. But man, I have I said it to myself yes. five million times. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Um, that actually, again, perfect transition. So you spoke about the importance of finding community in your responses. And I want to, again, reiterate, if you don't already follow Annie on Instagram and TikTok, you are 
very much missing out. Her TikToks are so funny. She is always quick on the trends. Um, They always apply to NBC or Living in Cancerland in a way that is educational, but it's also very funny. Um, I know Ren and I have a darker sense of humor, so I think it's hilarious what Annie does. But more than that, she takes the time (laughs) to nicely talk to social media people. And for those of you who do share your journeys openly, you've probably had someone offer unsolicited advice, make a really abrasive comment. Usually they are uh, cancer muggles. And Annie always takes the time to um, explain why whatever they said is not helpful or answer their question. And I just, I think that's helpful. Which is very yes, much because I, I just troll them back. So I'm not, again, don't follow my suit. Sometimes I'll explain it, but sometimes I'll find an audio about being dumb. So yeah, but I just, if you don't already follow Annie, you need to follow her. So funny. Um, so we kind of talked about how you got into TikTok and why you transitioned from um, Hollywood waitress TikTok into advocacy, cancer advocacy. Have you found that kind of niche to be kind of untapped or um, more or less helpful than other advocacy avenues that you've done? Or what what do you find is kind of the vibe in that social media advocacy and sharing your journey? I think it's taken me a while to find my voice in it because I feel like the most successful, you know, videos that I've had that have had the most reach or have, you know, really struck a chord with people are usually when I am just kind of saying what I'm feeling and not trying to put a filter over it or edit it in any way like just being like honest about like this is what it is like to live with this disease and I think um it's so cool I remember when I first got diagnosed I was like really desperate to find somebody on social media who had my diagnosis and there wasn't TikTok in 2015 and Instagram like was fine and I'd found like a few articles about girls and like tried to find them and like one of them had died of course and (laughs) It just like wasn't the same type of representation that I would have liked to see. And I didn't really, I hadn't really seen anybody doing funny cancer content. Um, There's a lot of people now and I definitely was not the first one to do it at all. I just hadn't found the people yet. And it's so cool to like be able to say something that I'm like, well, this is me and I think it's funny and maybe nobody else will. And to have a response from that community and to have people find me and be like, oh man, I also have stage four. This made me laugh or like, this shouldn't have made me laugh, but it did. It's just the coolest thing ever. And like being able, you know, the, honestly, the, my favorite thing I've done and the pandemic was really when I started a lot of this, um, because before I was not mentally ready at all. I remember trying to like start a blog and just always being like, I don't want to relive today. I want to get past it. <laughs> like, so this isn't working. But I I did just go to this AYA event in Chicago and it was specifically AYA patients. And there was somebody, like another girl did a comedy, like a five minute stand-up thing before my set about um, her butt cancer and made a bunch of funny jokes. And I had the coolest moment of like, watching her do it and I was like oh my god she's really funny and she's talking about cancer I was like that's what I do and then that immediately switched to oh my god she's doing comedy about cancer I was like no one else I've never ever seen anybody do this 
It's like seeing a teacher outside of the yeah. classroom. Because <laughs> I had tried, I'd done stand up before I got sick, and I, it's not a great, like, healthy world. Like, it's all very late at night, a lot of, like, alcohol involved, a lot of, like, weird producers and stuff. Like, for a woman, it's not, like, the safest environment, which I've, uh, many comedians have talked about. But I had done some sets, like, talking about cancer, and, like, sometimes I'd have a good reaction. One time a man started crying, like, and trying to hide it. <laughs> And I was like, he was laughing at the last guy. Like, I saw him and I am traumatizing this man. Like, this is not because those are like you oh, have five no. minutes and you just can't like get the point across. So standing in front of like a crowd of AYAs and having people laugh at the jokes I want them to laugh at and not feeling like I have to reassure the crowd every two seconds that I'm fine, that like I'm not going to drop dead on the stage any minute <laughs> was just the coolest experience. And it gave me such a uh, like big positive whoosh of joy and knowing that like this community does exist and that you know we do have this beautiful way of re reaching each other and laughing together and crying together and screaming into the void together and i think it's so cool it's really a way to just bring the community together and like when you hear the word cancer i mean it just has you know just like the dark tendencies to it but when we watch your tiktoks and just the dark humor in general it's almost like just lightens this shit up. It's a coping mechanism. I'm sure it's almost a little therapeutic for you. It just, I don't know. It just, um, it really makes a heavy situation lighter. And I feel like as an AYA or just a cancer patient in general, we freaking need that sometimes, man. Like we can't be around all this doom and gloom shit all it's the actually time. Actually, like I would there's psychologically no proven. I am I almost wrote like a post about this because somebody was upset that I made a joke about they told me not to drink something that I was drinking and it wasn't Diet Coke, <laughs> mind you. No, Diet Coke? I would I would throw down for Diet Coke. I'm so tired of drinking that. <laughs> I feel like it was like wine or something and like it being a risk factor. Mind you, it's like my one of two glasses a year. And I wrote a post and I they were like, well, you shouldn't drink that. And I was like, or what? And they were like, well, and I was like, I'll get cancer. And the look on the face, I was like, bye. <laughs> Too late. And so I, anyway, um, I was looking it up because I was like, this isn't weird to make jokes like that. Like that person was horrified. But I was looking it up and they've done all kinds of studies that people who have dark humor about really serious situations actually heal better in the long run because that's your brain creating distance between you as a human and that really scary thing. And so I tell myself that. that all the time. I'm like, I'm going to keep making borderline inappropriate dark jokes because I do feel like I am healing better now than I was when I took it very seriously in that first year and my mental health was a wasteland of... And it's a control thing, too, because there's so much about cancer that we, I mean, there's everything we have no control over for the most part. And so, like, I developed, like, some really weird control issues, like, kind of OCD stuff when I first got diagnosed, too, because I was like, I can't go into a situation where I don't know everything that's happening. Never have I felt like that in my life. I was like, social butterfly, I'll go anywhere, it's fine. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, but if we go there, what if something happens? What if I can't do this? Like, what if I pass out all of a sudden, which I've never done also. <laughs> it's like, I would just spiral. And it took me, I had a therapist early on who told me, you know, it's easy to be unhappy. It's easy to be sad. It's difficult to be happy. Happiness is a choice and it takes Ooh, action every that. day. You know, because I started to feel very hopeless very early on. And it was a really scary place to be. And somewhere I've always been 
I'm, I'm a middle child again. I, I like, I'm the peacemaker. I like to make people laugh. I've always been like a performer and like, I like to bring people joy. And so knowing I was the source of unhappiness and worry for my mm. family, for like the people I love the most killed me to a point where I was like, I'm a Ooh, burden I and I that. shouldn't be here. And I've never felt like that. And it scared me so much because I was like, this is a weird feeling, not realizing this is suicidal thoughts. Not even thinking that, but just thinking I shouldn't, I'm causing everyone trouble. I'm a burden and I shouldn't be here. I should, I, I, and then when you lose people in the community, it becomes, well, they did everything right. And I'm an idiot who drank a glass of wine the other day. You know, it's like, <laughs> like they were growing their own vegetables. Like I should have, you know, it's a vicious cycle of comparison and, um, and that kind of like looking at other people. I, um, don't have the most functional relationship with my immediate family and for a long, long time. Um, and still every now and then, um, it is one of those things where somebody, like passes away and you see how devastated their family is and it's like you know that's hard it's hard to be like well why them and not me um those those thoughts are hard and they're to your point um happiness is a choice and learning to balance the intrusive thoughts and the heaviness that is living with this and knowing that nothing is guaranteed and everything can shift in an instant um I think that does. I do really try to balance my content with that of being like, yeah, let's make a funny joke. But then let's also look at what is serious and what can work. And that's why, you know, I with the haters, (laughs) we'll call them the medical advice throwers, because I got a lot of those early on and I tried everything. I was trying all kinds of be pollen, apricot, kernel, frankincense all over my boobies stuff. Because I was like, whatever, if it doesn't hurt, like, we'll just try it. like a Catholic funeral with the Frankenstein. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) And, you know, for some of that, like, it's not harmful. And if you think it, if it makes you feel better, that's great. But for me now, like, I do think it is important to, uh, I used to just like kind of make fun of people or like blow them off or just block them, honestly. And now I've really turned this page of wanting to like, come at them in a way that's like, well, here's of making them answer the questions first of being like, well, why do you think that? Well, what do you think this is? So that then I can say, okay, here's where you're incorrect. And here's why this is dangerous. Because what you're doing is most of the time, they're creating a narrative of people are responsible for their own cancer. And that promotes survivor's guilt. And then that promotes bad mental health and survivors. And that is something that I do not stand for. So I'm trying, most of the time it fails. Most of the time they end up calling me a sheep or telling me to open my eyes or whatever. And that's fine. But I will just make sure that I present them with facts. And lately it seems like people just stop responding eventually, which to me is very satisfactory. That's how I feel. Well, it's really, and it's really interesting to me because you're putting yourself out there publicly on a social media platform. And of course you run the risk of people coming for your throat, which it seems like you experience, you know, every once in a while. Yeah, not every day. But every once in a while, sometimes I'm asking for it too. I put something up that I know is controversial and then I'm like, oopsie. But you know what the cool thing about it is it's like you're getting, even if it's negative engagement, you are getting engagement from outside of the cancer community, which is what we essentially need. It's like, yeah, 
like we as NBC thrivers, like we already know the education. We know the facts behind the diagnosis, the, the statistics, the treatment options, the do's, the don'ts, like whatever the hell it is. But it's the people outside of the community who need to be educated on the matter. And you're doing that. And it might not be in a way that they agree necessarily, but you are still like subconsciously educating those people. And that if is there's the goal. any, yeah. And if there's anything that we really need, as thrivers, it's that we need more, you know, awareness on metastatic breast cancer. And that's what I call yeah. it. I call it actual awareness because so often the word awareness is used as an excuse to like steal money from uh, programs that would actually be useful to have or like preventative care as well. It's like, yeah, sure. You could do everything right and still get cancer. Like what, what is your preventative care? Like if it's earlier diagnosing, great. But if it's just like, giving health seminars i don't know if that's as helpful <laughs> but like awareness just being like we're generating awareness by telling people breast cancer exists i'm like no that we're done with that yeah we are way past, past that, that at this yeah. point <laughs> we're moving yes, past we are that. way past that yeah. and like i just i freaking love what you're doing on tiktok because I, like i just mm -hmm. i think you're making a really big difference i really really do and i'm sorry that sometimes you get hate but i really think that that's just kind of like it's honestly yeah i've, I've become so now. fine <laughs> with it like i will say when i i got some rough comments on a celebrity video sometime one time somebody said what is she like 60 and i was like i definitely do not look 60 okay <laughs> i was like that is so mean you're like I'm offended yeah. by and that, and it's weird because like that was almost funnier to me. But when sometimes when it's cancer stuff, like sometimes I can take it lighter, sometimes I take it harder, uh, because I'm a sensitive baby and I'm fine with that. Uh, but I do think that like it is so interesting to me what works and what doesn't. But I did have a video, and it was right before I went on vacation, where I was talking about how breast cancer isn't sexy and how I don't like, and I use the word offended. I said I'd seen a girl wearing a shirt that was like boobies rule. And that's all it said on it. In the back, it just said breast cancer awareness month. And I was like, great. I don't like that. And it was just an example of a larger problem. And the fact that people couldn't see that part of it, like some people were so mad, like she can't take a joke. Like, well, she's raising awareness and that's important. And I felt like dr I was drowning in those types of comments. But now I think I have a better balance with it. Yeah, because now I'm like, but you know what? I know what the point I was trying to make is if people are going to hold on to the fact that like everyone's so offended these days, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah. And also everyone is still making sex jokes about breast cancer, which is a disease that usually takes the majority of your sexual function and organs and like the things that supposedly define being a woman, like your breasts and your you know, all, all these things. So I, I am so much more confident now in what I'm doing and like in the fact that it is doing some good. And always the goal for me is like, I want to be the person that I needed when I was first diagnosed. Like I want, when I watch a video that I make to try to look at it from that lens of like, what did she need? And how can I help her? Because that person still exists. It's just not me anymore. It's the other people and there are more and more young women getting diagnosed with breast cancer I just find people who are like I just found a lump and I'm scared and just being able to tell them like hey you can show your doctor my page be like okay bet like you're telling me I probably don't have cancer bet L look at this tell me I can't get a scan you know and I'm fine with being the worst case example <laughs> we're the only age group that it's rising um year over year is the under 40 and we know that we are diagnosed later 
for a multitude of reasons. We know that we tend to have more aggressive subtypes and later stages when we're diagnosed. So um, it's all facts. It's all out there. And you can say that we're still a small population, but um, I think the work that you're doing and that video was so important because it isn't just awareness. It's sexualizing cancer. And I have yet to see anybody wearing a shirt that says balls rule. Like it's exactly. not happening. We're not doing that for testicular cancer. We're Oh, I looked it up. Most of those are more factual in the joke where it's like, yeah, cancer took one ball. You know, like I'm fine with it being like, of course they're fake. The real ones tried to kill me. Like, I think that's funny. That's funny. I left. That's that. fine. But if somebody feels represented base, by that, that's fine. Yeah. Like, yeah. Save, save second. No. Yeah. <laughs> Boobies rule. Great. Then tell me why they have to remove breasts over like 70% of the time. The save the boob. It's a, it's a, it's all about just how they're wording it and how it's incorrect and how it makes me angry. I don't like it because it's sexualizing it. I think it's yeah. But I was I remember like I, there was BuzzFeed had written an article about it and I was just sitting there and I was like I'm not even going to read the comments on this because I've learned from the celebrity videos. I was like and I don't care because I'm so proud of myself that this conversation is happening in an article and that I am being credited with starting the conversation because and that's what I've taken is I always know I'm not the only one saying this. I'm not the only one who needs this message to go out. We're all doing it together. So when any of us succeed, we all succeed. And like the more our voices are heard, like the better it is. Now, one question that I do have for you. So doing TikTok and, you know, the Instagram reels and just being on social media, obviously it, you know, it tends to affect your mental health. I would assume positively, but also, you know, negatively, which we kind of discussed, but in your Instagram response, you shared with us that your best advice is to treat your mental health with the same importance as your physical health. And Kate and I were like, we freaking love that. So of course I want you to touch upon that maybe aside, you know, from the social media aspect of it. So how, how do you go about doing that? Um, forced lessons. That's what we call these. (laughs) So when I was first diagnosed, I was having these moments of like tunnel vision where I couldn't really hear anything. And like, I would just, again, have my vision would be tunneling or like I would be getting this bad news and I wouldn't be crying. I would just be kind of sitting there. And then I'd have like later, like a weird moment of like intense panic where I couldn't see for a minute. And I didn't know what these were. Like, I thought I'd had panic attacks in my life when I was like a teenager and a boy didn't like me or whatever. And I remember a nurse, again, some of the best advice I got was from nurses telling me, you know, make sure you uh, seek out like a support group. Like, and she had brought me to one place. It was really far from my house, but there was one that was closer. And I met uh, the woman there who ran the group. I was like, can I also do individual therapy? I was like, I don't really know if I'm ready for group yet. And she was like, yeah, of course. And she was a breast cancer survivor herself. And just learning that like what I was experiencing was my body going into survival mode, was this fight or flight, was my body going through trauma. And it was affecting me so intensely that like I didn't feel like I was living my life. I felt like I was watching a movie every day. And that wasn't a healthy place for me to be. Like I was always in a state of panic. I would cry every morning by myself. Like I was very much like, I'm just going to fix it. Everything will be fine. 
And also my first name is Dorothy, but I've always gone by Annie. So I was also just letting everyone at the hospital call me Dorothy. So I was like, Dorothy has cancer and Annie is fine. But I just knew that I was like, this is not a a way for me to live. And like the hormone changes also. Yeah. And And learning, it was so validating to me and gave me so much power to know that like, this is an actual physical thing that is happening in my body that I do not have control over that I that I need to handle. Like, but it's a real thing. I'm not crazy. This is real, like the chemicals in your body. And like you, it's going into I think I'm going to die. Yeah. Whether or not you feel like symptomatic or not, like in your head, your head is telling you I was just told I would have two, two to five years or that I have cancer in my liver. Like, you need somebody to talk to. You can't tell your doctor, hey, I'm staying up all night and I'm scared I'm going to drop dead or I'm scared about the burden I'm putting on my family. There are some doctors that will give you the time to talk to you about that, but there are more qualified mental health like professionals, professionals who can help yeah. you with it so much more mm-hmm. effectively. And it's so necessary in your healing. So where the focus is like, get treatment, get surgery, like stay strong, like do your best. It's like none of that can exist if your head is a mess. You're not healing. That's part of healing. And it's a very important part of it. No, I agree completely. I mean, my few things are like therapy, prayer, consistent, clear scans. Like I needed a few years of survival to be like, okay, like your girl's got this in the bag. But holy shit, was it not easy. I completely agree with you that your like mental health has to be, you have to be okay up there before you're okay anywhere else, I feel like. Your brain is so powerful. Yeah, and everyone's like, oh yeah, you can lean on your family. And I have a great family, but I was looking at my mom also going through trauma. Like She moved out to LA to like help take care of me because my boyfriend was working a nine to five and I was getting treatments all the time and she wanted to be involved like she was you know of course wanted to be here to help however she could and she would be like feeling her emotions during it and I was like why don't I have emotions I was like why am I why do I feel frozen why do I feel like and there was like a moment where a surgeon had told me you know actually with your tumor in your liver we could probably just do surgery and you might not have to get chemo and when he left the room I started sobbing for the first time in like weeks and it was just so interesting to me, like, I, you know, you expect when you're diagnosed with cancer to be like a mess and like so dramatic and you're shaving your head and like all this stuff. And sure, that's a part of it. But I didn't expect to feel like a shell of a human being and to like p- have people calling me and sending me nice things and to just feel nothing, to just feel nothing but paralyzing fear, which is what it was, even though it was silent and different than I would expect that to feel that's what it was and I had to get past that I can relate to that so much and I think a lot of listeners can that um, Mm -hmm. the stereotypical cancer patient that's not what I personally experienced I experienced the same thing you did where I had this tunnel vision of just surviving that initial year and getting through that I didn't um I wasn't crying all the time I had this like goal line of like, I need to finish chemo and then I need to have my surgeries and then I'll grieve. And I wish more than anything that someone on my team had stopped and said, you need to go to therapy with the same frequency that you're going to all of your cancer appointments because 2020 was all about cancer survival for me. 
and 2020, I have never um, been as mentally unwell as I was that year. It was like everything that I didn't handle in 2020 came back with a vengeance and it was all mental. And I, that's your, your advice hit so close to home because that's what I needed to know in 2020. Mm-hmm. And it would have been easier to, uh, 2021 would not have been as rough. I will leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Cause it will build up. And I also think something that enough people don't know is that one of the hardest parts of going through cancer is when you finish treatment Yeah, is when they're like, okay, good job. You're done. Go back to normal. I like couldn't leave my house for a month. Genuinely. I was like, welcome to go back to my old job. They were like, you can work anywhere you want in the restaurant. Like, we just want you to be okay. And I was like, I can't talk to people. Like I can't leave my little safe zone. And so then the type of tools I needed, like I needed a, like a different set of tools than I did while I was going through treatment to then adjust back into my new life. And then even with long-term survivorship, which is thankfully where I'm getting to, I also need like new tools now. And especially with a pandemic and like mm-hmm. when things change, like I don't handle change well. And it's a long-term thing because you've gone through trauma and like I have diagnosed PTSD. And that is something that's so common. And that takes constant treatment. I mean, you, you'll you have times where you're a lot better and then there's times where you're not doing well and you never know what's going to trigger that. Like anytime I lose somebody, even if it's unrelated to cancer, like my cat got cancer <laughs> while I was going through treatment and died when she was four of cancer in her liver. No. And I was like, this is specifically cruel. <laughs> Holy shit. And that is what started my PTSD actually is what's funny because I was having such a difficult time with it and I was like, and that's like when I got diagnosed with that was there like, I think this is triggering something in you that would be defined as like a severe trauma response or like a post-traumatic stress event. Honestly, just hearing from both of you, I mean, I feel like this conversation has been therapeutic in more ways than one because I sit here this upcoming summer, it'll be four years with NBC, three and a half years of that being Ned, and I am having some of like the harshest mental health issues right now, even with consistent therapy. It's like the trauma that I do think I blocked out and the trauma that I didn't allow myself to feel back then is punching me in the face right now. And it's surreal that it can creep back up when you least expect it. And some people look at us and we are beautiful and we have hair and Everyone thinks that we are kicking ass and the cancer is gone and we're fine, but nobody freaking knows the trauma and just the shit that we are dealing with internally on a daily basis. And I'm having these conversations with my therapist. I'm having these conversations with my husband, my family. It's confusing to me because I feel like, hey, you're Ned. You should feel great. You should be great. You should be doing great things. And I am like struggling beyond belief right now. And it is a confusing space to be in. It's a hard balance to find, to be in that like, I should feel grateful space, but I'm also like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I, like I'm not good up there right now. So it's super confusing. And so I feel you both on that 100%. It's hard hard to live in a dichotomy yeah I don't think there's any I I always say when people 
talk about, especially with stage four, there's so many different weird layers to it that a lot of people don't understand. That's why like community is also very important to like feel like you're not isolated and alone because that will send you down bad paths. Well, that was actually the next question. So do you have, you know, besides, well, I guess when you were first diagnosed at 26, like, did you have services or support groups geared towards people your age or under 40? Or did you experience that gap? I was always the youngest person in the room. I feel that. Everywhere I went. There was one really good group I had that was run by that therapist, um, who that therapist did end up dying of a breast cancer recurrence. So that was, again, another layer of fun drama. It just, it's like a cake. Oh, just keeps going. The longest cake of eternity. I mean, it's (laughs) terrible. It's too sweet. I don't want it. Um, Dry and awful. (laughs) But... I had found, I'd gone to like the breast cancer specific group and I felt like I was way too young. Like everybody was like 40 or over. And I, you know, when you're 26, you're like, uh, and then I found a specifically a young survivor group. And I, and I was like worried that, you know, it's all different types of cancer. Is that going to be a different, like, are we going to not be able to relate? And it's crazy how much you can relate to the experience, even when the specifics are so different. Mm. I like the feelings can still be really similar. And I do think with groups, um, I always tell people now, especially with online groups, to be really careful what you consume um, because they can be too much at times and that's okay. It's okay to need a break from them. It's okay to need some time to yourself to deal with something because people will trauma dump and like we're all sensitive in ways we don't realize and it's okay to be like, this is too much for me right now. Agreed. Um, and I think especially with online groups, there aren't moderators who can get stuff as quickly as like a moderated group that like is run by a therapist or run by a professional. I do think, especially if you're in treatment, like make sure that you have that balance. Like, of course you can join Facebook groups, but, and you know, zoom groups with a moderator are also in online groups. Like that's better, but I've found myself that I will go too deep into Facebook groups and, it will not be good for my mental health. So balance is good. And knowing your limits is really good because you also can get compassion fatigue really fast of like, I want to help everybody now that I'm better. Or like I can give them advice. And sometimes you just need to take time to yourself to work on yourself. And that's okay too. Sometimes you don't have the emotional capacity to give and that's okay. Cause there are like, there are so many good groups and I do think that finding and now with with social media, like it's so nice to be able to have pages that do a good balance of like comedy and then also like advocacy and um, education and stuff, too, that aren't like just because, you know, you have to have a balance again, balance. <laughs> Everything is balanced. I like how there's a wide variety of, you know, just resources that we have at our fingertips, because I feel like, you know five years ago that didn't exist yeah it's it didn't exist at all when I was first diagnosed and had it not been for that nurse like giving me the phone number of a place which was a Gilda group the Gilda Radner one it was just in Santa Monica and I live in the valley which if you don't know it's too long of a drive (laughs) then there was a place in the valley that was really great and I remember even like I hadn't met anybody else I really specifically wanted to meet somebody else who liked comedy who was young and had cancer and I was like that's my pipe dream and I was volunteering at an event and I met this girl who's my my good friend Megan now um and we were talking and I was like oh so like what kind of cancer you have she's like oh I have breast cancer and I was like how old are you she's like I'm 30 and I was like oh like what do you do she's like oh I do comedy at UCB (laughs) 
I was like, wait, how do I not know you? And like now she was early stage then and now she has uh, metastatic breast cancer and has for the past couple of years. But it is crazy like to I found the person I was looking for by volunteering in the support group community. Aww. So I do think that that for me was like, yeah, and she's wonderful and also loves dogs and is the best person and is really good at remembering science stuff, which also helps a lot. <laughs> Because I'll be like, what does this mean? And she's like, I know, I understand it. I'll tell you. <laughs> so, Annie, we just really appreciate all of your answers today. I think this is going to be like a community favorite. It is such good advice, um, funny advice, real advice. And you're just a beacon in this community already because you you have been here so long. You can speak from experience. We're just so appreciative. And so we want to end by asking you, and you kind of already touched on it, but maybe like in just a few words, what's your why? What's your reason for continuing to share this story, even though you're eight years out and it nobody would be uh, surprised or judgy or anything if you thought, I need to just go back to being, uh, living a more normal life or doing things that are, where cancer is not such a big part. What keeps you here and what keeps you talking about it? I think, you know, I said before, it's speaking for who I was when I was first diagnosed. And, and that's where I started. And I think now what keeps me going is that I am able to speak and that I am where I am. And I know so many people who are not able to do that, who are not in a good place in their treatment or who have passed. And it helps give that a purpose and it helps make me feel like I can do something good with it and especially you know the the really unfortunate thing that comes with it and with this community is that we do lose people really often and it's never a good story it's never oh well they were old and lived a good life it's always they were young and had cancer and there's nothing that is good in that and when you get so close to these people and you form these very special relationships, even if you never meet the person in real life, you, they know everything about you and things about you that they understand that other people in your life don't. So then when they're gone in an instant, I feel like I have to speak for them because they cannot speak any longer. But when they were here, they tried so hard to get their message across and to tell their story. And even for the people who, again, like are at a really hard time in their treatment, when I was first getting diagnosed, I, there was no way I would have been vlogging or like filming at the hospital, making funny TikToks. Like maybe I would have, but I was really scared then. And I wish that I'd had somebody to help make me laugh in a way that was specific to my experience instead of just me trying to blend into the person that I was, trying to blend into the things that I used to enjoy, to the person that I used to be. I, I am really proud of myself and how far I've come. And I am, you know, grateful to be l lucky in this weird, morbid lottery that is having <laughs> metastatic breast cancer young. And I know that, you know, I hope it lasts. I know it might not. And so while I can, I'm going to do everything I can to try to make a better future because it is, you know, if I was earlier stage, maybe I'd feel in a, I'd feel a little bit differently because I'd be like, oh, I'm cured. And like, 
I'm not going to have a recurrence or whatever. But I mean, now they say the recurrence rates are closer to 50%. Used to be like 30. Now it's closer to 50. And the majority of those are stage four when recurrence happens. And I just feel like we're so close with so many of these treatments that it's already getting better. Science is moving faster than like an internet search could keep up with. And I just see so much hope in the future of breast cancer. And I know that like representation means everything. So I just want to be a little corner of the world that can bring joy and solidarity to people like me. And I think that that just like gets me up in the morning and it makes me feel good. And honestly, like that's what I feel more passionately about than anything else in my life. Like I've always wanted to be an actor and like win an Oscar. <laughs> and now like that feels uh, not as important to me as advocacy does. Like when I'm standing with a group of other AYAs or when I have a video that reaches people and is effective, it just creates this little light in me that just makes me feel like this is what I should be doing in the world. Like this is how I make all the pain worth it is by hopefully helping alleviate anybody else, even if it's just slightly for a moment. And you're doing it. You are. You are doing the damn thing. You're doing it. Yep. You've made that corner. Beautifully said. Yeah. Um, just appreciate what you're doing. I'm sure a lot of the people in our community really appreciate just the uplifting videos that you put out there, the funny, you know, dark humor that we all need at times. Um, but also your way of reaching people outside of the community and also bringing awareness to metastatic breast cancer. So from the bottom of our hearts, we really appreciate you. And, and we are so appreciative of you joining us on the pod today and doing this episode with us because you are going to be touching many today. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the one thing I will leave people with is my favorite quote, which was my friend, Christina, who had metastatic breast cancer, who I don't know if you guys knew her. She was amazing. Um, she traveled a lot. And her what she always said was, keep fucking going. And that is something that has always stuck with me, is no matter how low, I always just hear her, I see her smile, and I just think, like, keep yes. fucking going. Just keep going. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what the future holds, but just keep doing it. Just keep going, no matter what. Keep fucking going. Uh, I quoted her in my feature. Because she was a force, um, and she was an incredible, incredible human. Um, I love that you she were friends amazing. with her, too. She was amazing. She is amazing, because she's still, obviously, both of us. I have that in my feature. I quoted her. You're quoting her. Like, she's she is amazing. Yeah. She's still making a difference. Absolutely. And she should have had more time. Yes, she should. Research, people. Research. Yes. Put Funding. money into research. We do not need more pink shirts and pink cookies. All right. Well, that is a wrap. Thank you again, Annie, for joining us on the pod today. So Kate and I have really, really wholeheartedly enjoyed um, our segment that we did this month, um, AYA May. And we are just so happy and thrilled to see our little community growing and just watching how y'all show up for each other is amazing. So to say we are grateful does not cover it. We wanted to thank all of our participants this month, our co-host, Kate, Ariel, Sam, Sammy, Amy, Samantha, Catherine, Lisa, Frankie, Kiara, Nicole, Steph, Kristen, 
Jacqueline, Katie, Alexis, Jenna, Becca, Andrea, Amanda, Katie, Ashley, Anne, Catherine, Charlie, Diane, Jerry Lynn, Jasmine, and of course, our guest speaker for today, Annie. Thank you so much for tuning into our podcast, Living Our Breast Lives. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at Living Our Breast Lives, where we will share podcast updates, special dates, educational resources, and of course, health updates for those following the community's MBC journeys. Have questions, comments, or anything else you'd like answered on our podcast? Send us a message on Instagram. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts, and as always, choose kindness. Someone may look fine on the outside, but you never know who's actually struggling on the inside. And until next time, don't forget to live your breast lives. God bless. Mm-hmm.